Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Oh, I know why. There's no overhead over there this week. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We're in, uh, we're in a new series we started last week uh, on the lives of, of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, so this is part two. Uh, and last week, we looked at 1 Kings chapter 17 uh, and the widow of Zarephath. Today, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, what I'm calling the showdown on Mount Carmel. Uh, but first, by way of a background, last week we began the story of Elijah during the 8th to 9th century BC, uh, Israel had, uh, the reigning king and queen of Israel were, were King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Jezebel had also been the high priestess of Baal, or Baal, uh, uh, up in Sidon, or Sidon, just north of Israel, in Phoenicia, uh, modern-day Lebanon. Uh, and she uh, was married to Ahab in a marriage of convenience, a uh, political alliance, and she brought with her, when she got married, uh, down to Israel, 450 prophets of Baal, of Baal, and 400 prophets uh, of Ashtoreth to impose their pagan religion upon Israel. Baal was the god of, of rain and the storm and thunder and lightning, the god of weather. Uh, and it started out in the beginning just as religious pluralism, uh, just adding Baal to worship of the, of the one true god of Israel, of the Lord God of Israel. But then it quickly turned. It turned into persecuting and killing the true prophets of God and imposing paganism as the one and only allowed religion in Israel. Just like we see happening today in America. First it begins as a campaign of tolerance for, for perverse and alternative lifestyles and immorality. But then it quickly turns into persecution against anyone daring to uphold Judeo-Christian biblical values. And a lot of what we see today, taking over America, is fueled by the spirit of Jezebel. This ultra-feminist, sexually immoral, anti-family, manipulative, witchcraft, man-hating, traditional values-hating spirit. That's the spirit of Jezebel. The Jezebel spirit. Now, who would have thought, even, even 20 years ago, who would have thought that today in America, the liberal establishment and the media and Hollywood and academia would be, would be championing things like late-term abortion and, and even infanticide uh, and screaming in public rallies to celebrate your abortion? Who would have thought even 20 years ago that, that mainstream organizations like Focus on the Family uh, and companies like Chick-fil-A would be vilified for standing up for traditional biblical values. Uh, or that homosexuality would be mainstream, and believers would be, would be uh, sued and even sometimes imprisoned for not supporting it. Uh, and that public libraries would have drag queen story hours for young children. And gay relationships would be pushed and promoted uh, on every TV show and even children's cartoons. Who would have thought, even 10, 20 years ago, that a so-called transgender movement would arise out of nowhere, calling uh, men who want to be women as heroes, uh, an emasculating manhood, and denouncing anyone who stands against them as evil, toxic masculinity? 
Who would have thought 20 years ago that the number of witches in America would today outnumber the number of Presbyterians? As As Dr. Michael Brown and as Jonathan Kahn and others have pointed out, Jezebel is truly at war with America. And the very heart and soul and future of our nation is at stake. We are just one election away from descent into all-out paganism. And the churches and synagogues are asleep. And we need to wake up. And so the story of Elijah is exceedingly relevant to us today. Now, as I said, Baal was the rain and the storm of God. But the Lord, the one true God, the God of Israel, he sent Elijah to Ahab and to Jezebel. And he says, in judgment against you and against your gods, I'm going to send a drought. There won't be a drop of water in the land until I say so through my prophet Elijah. So we'll see who's the real God of the storm. So let's turn now to our our text, 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 16. Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals, the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word through all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, I want you to notice something. Here's Elijah, this preacher on the run, uh, whose Jezebel's trying to kill. And here's Ahab, the king of Israel, uh, the number number one guy who's in charge of the whole country. But who's giving the orders? Elijah. Eliyahu. Elijah's giving the orders. Now, Now, he has no office No crown, no throne, no army, but he's commanding the king of Israel. And the king does what he says. Where did Elijah get such authority? It's the authority of one man utterly yielded to God. Note that one man with the Lord is a majority. So do not be intimidated by numbers. For we could see into the invisible spirit realm we would realize that those who are with us are far more than those who are against us. So note the picture here on this showdown on Mark Carmel. On the one side stand 850 pagan prophets and the king and the army and all the forces of government and religion and the establishment and the deep state and the swamp and political power. On the other side, one man, one solitary prophet emerges from years of hiding to confront king and country and false religion single-handedly. But with that one man is the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. And Elijah, in this incredible act of courage, takes down the whole nation. Uh, look at verse 21, 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now here's what's striking. The people don't really think that they've rejected the the Lord God of Israel. 
They still pray to him when, when, when nothing else works. They, all, they, they think they've just added Baal you know, to their pantheon. Uh, and that's the way idolatry typically works. And that's why it was such a threat to Israel. The people thought they could worship both the Lord and Baal. Baal. You know, the word tra- uh, translated here is waver. Why do you waver between two opinions? It literally means to, to hobble or to limp. Uh, you know, in, in Hebrew, the verb holech, uh, to walk, it's used as a metaphor for, for your way of life. Right? That's why halacha, the way you should go, are, are the rules for life. And Elijah's saying, you've chosen a miserable way to live. Get off the fence. Stop limping. Stop being double-minded. Let me pause for a moment and ask you, what Baals are you struggling with today? You see, Baal is anything that tempts you away from full devotion to God. It could be a relationship. It could be materialism. It could be porn. It could be lack of a prayer life and Bible study. It could be a habit or an addiction, uh, or worldliness, uh, or self-focus, or gossip. It could be pride and ego uh, and, and your image. It could be judgmentalism against others and, and bitterness and unforgiveness or grudge. It could be a temper and, and your lack of self-control. It's any idol that you refuse to let go of. Often, Baal is the insistence, I've got to be in control of my own life. I've got to reserve for myself the right to have my own way. Maybe you've been telling yourself you can hang on to your little bales uh, and hang on to God also. But you can't. Eliza's whole point is you can't. You must choose this day whom you will serve. I'm going to put this on the overhead. The human heart is capable of giving its ultimate allegiance and devotion to only one master. Only one. Matthew 6, 24, Yeshua says, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you be devoted to the one and despise the other. Elijah says, if it's going to be Baal, well, just be honest about it. Uh, don't add hypocrisy to your disobedience. If it's going to be Baal, uh, and that's the way your drift carries you, just be honest about it. But if it's going to be the Lord, the Lord God, fall on your knees and confess, and repent, and start walking with him. But you must choose. It's decision time. One man, one prophet, standing before the whole nation in defiance of king and queen and 850 false prophets. One man saying to a a wayward nation, you must choose whom you will serve. And we wait for the people's response. 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people say nothing. It's dead silence. Crickets. The nation just stands there and refuses to respond. Most likely some of them are, are sullen. Some are defiant. Some are confused. Some are saying, Choose? Why should we choose? The current religious pluralism, it suits me just fine. It covers all my bases. 
I can call on the Lord when I want to. I can call on Baal when I want to. Why should I choose? I like staying in control and, and keeping my options open. Thank you very much. So no one said a word. Think about it. How sad. This silence. How sad this silence must have been to God. After all these centuries of his supernatural care and provision and protection, the nation that he poured his heart out into just stands there noncommittal, silent. No one will stand up for the Lord. Uh, verse 22, 1 Kings 18, 22. Then Eliyahu, then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Uh, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but, but not set fire to it. Then you call the name of your God and I'll call him the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Baal, as we've seen, was, was the God of nature. In fact, he's pictured in ancient pictures with lightning bolts in his hands. Uh, so fire should have been a piece of cake for him, right? He's in control of fire from the sky. So it should have been easy for Baal, right? Verse 25. Eliza said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it, since there's so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no, one, no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they, they prepared. And at noon, Elijah begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's asleep and has to be awakened. Baal's not doing too well. And Eliza wants to make sure everyone understands how absurd it is to put your trust in Baal. So he mocks them. He engages in a little prophetic trash talk. <laughs> and by the way, where Elijah says, maybe he's traveling, the actual Hebrew says, they don't put this in, the, in your Bibles, but the actual Hebrew says, maybe he's busy on the toilet. <laughs> Elijah's just mocking their belief in this false god. Maybe your god suffers from irregularity. <laughs> Maybe he's got ADD and he's attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Verse 28, 1 Kings 18, 28. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their, their frantic prophesying until the evening time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response no one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah says to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he, as Ben talked about earlier, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one to each of the 12 tribes of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name, Jacob, shall be Israel. And with the stones, he, he rebuilt the altar in the name of the Lord. And he took a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs, about 24 pounds of seed. And he arranged the wood and cut the bull in pieces and laid the bull on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. They did it a third time. 
and the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. Then Elijah prays. What a contrast to the wild excesses of the prophets of Baal. What a contrast. The prophets of Baal think they can get their God's attention by praying loud enough and long enough and with wild antics and frenzy and with the right formula or by making a bargain with their God. But the Lord, the one true God, is not that kind of a person. Elijah thus very calmly talks to God. Look at verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah steps forward and prays, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you're turning their hearts back again. And God sees, and God cares, and God answers the prayer. And he sends fire down from heaven and and burns up the sacrifice. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fall prostrate and they cry, Adonai huwa Elohim, Adonai huwa Elohim. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now remember, by the way, that's actually Elijah's name. Eliyahu in Hebrew means the Lord, he is God. And then to complete this act of of spiritual warfare and victory over the forces of darkness, the prophets of Baal Baal are destroyed. Look at verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them get away. They, They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now, as I said... We live in a time in many ways that's just like the time of Elijah. A multitude of false gods have risen up in America to destroy our country's unique Judeo-Christian heritage and culture like never before. Marriage is under attack. Family is under attack. Uh, Even basic gender roles are under attack. Uh, Morality is under attack. Evil is now good and good is now evil. Uh, uh, people who stand up for biblical morality uh, and for traditional families or to, for right to life, well, well they're labeled bigots uh, and haters and hounded from the public square. Today, our culture instead, what does it do? It celebrates a transgender male athlete speeding women in sports uh, and invading their dressing rooms uh, and drag queens being role models for little children. And abortion in the third trimester, and even now infanticide. And pornography everywhere. And birth certificates that now list male, female, and other as options for gender. And on and on and on. The ancient god of Molech, the god of child sacrifice, is alive and well in America. And the gods of Baal and Asherah, and their sexual perversion, and temple prostitutes, and homosexual priests run rampant in America. You know, once a year, the men worshiping Baal would worship the goddess dressed in female dress as part of their worship. Sound familiar? Jezebel and her demonic deities have truly invaded our country. And so we need to encourage the men and women of God to rise up and to stand and and retake control of their homes and our nation for the Lord.
We need to expose the darkness and expel these demonic forces from our land. We're going to get to this later on in the series, but I want you to note uh, that when when Jehu comes out uh, at the end of the story to confront Jezebel and to take her down, he calls her to come out of her tower, and what does she do? She paints her face and, and uh, and tries to tempt him and manipulate him. She's still a seductress, even in her old age. She's still trying to seduce. But it doesn't work on Jehu. And he says, who's with me? And some of Jehu's, uh, I'm sorry, some of Jezebel's uh, eunuchs rise up. Suddenly remember they're still men. (laughs) Get some courage. And they throw her down from the tower to her death. Now, who are eunuchs? They're castrated males, right? They're men who've had their authority taken away. They've been emasculated uh, and dominated by this radical feminist spirit. But they, but they rise up and they regain their authority. In the same way, we have millions of men in America, and even within the body of Messiah, who've become spiritual eunuchs, who've been emasculated, either by a bad marriage, or by deceit of, of the liberal culture, Over the lies on TV sitcoms that constantly belittle men and husbands and fathers. Or maybe by their own sexual addiction. They've lost their sense of spiritual authority. But it's time for the castrated males in churches and synagogues who are Yeshua followers to rise up in their God-given spiritual authority and stand and be the men and husbands and fathers that God has called them to be. And let me tell you something. The women of America are looking for godly men. Not some macho caricature, but godly men who lead homes and families and children to be the priests of their household and not to bow down to the lies of this world, but to stand against this rising tide of Jezebel that has seduced America. God is calling us today to oppose this Jezebel spirit and the false gods that she has brought into America. And let me encourage you, just like in the, in the scriptures, Jezebel is going to be thrown down. As the body of Messiah rises up and asserts again her God-given authority over the forces of darkness. We live in many ways like the times of Elijah. And therefore, we need modern-day Elijahs to rise up and oppose these forces of darkness and stand for the Lord. For the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And in standing up to Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah says, let's have a contest. Uh, The battle of the gods. Uh, The showdown at the OK Corral. Let's see who the true God is. Uh, And so we learn here, How do we discern among all these competing spiritual claims which God is true and which ones are false? We're going to put this on the overhead. We're going to learn three things here. Number one, why there has to be a contest. Number two, how do you know who the false gods are? And three, how do you know the true God? So first, why should there even be a contest? Elijah says, let's have a contest, see who the real God is, what the right religion is, What's the true faith? Now, why does Elijah start the contest this way? Because most people in Israel back then would have said the same thing that the average American believes today. 
When Elijah says, we're going to see who the true God is, and which one is true, which one is false, the average person then, and the average person now, says, why? Why try to decide which one's right, right, which one's wrong? You're being so binary. You're being so exclusive. You're being so intolerant. And you're assuming that there's only one truth. But in reality, truth is relative. I can have my truth, you can have your truth. You know, we don't have to decide and make these choices. Plus, aren't our religions basically the same anyways? Aren't they all true and they're all right and they're all valid in their own way? Why do we have to decide if one is right and one is wrong? Who wants to do that? The average Israelite back then says, I sacrificed to Baal on Monday and I sacrificed to Asher on Thursday and I sacrificed to the Lord on Shabbat. What's wrong with that? Why should I have to choose? But look what Elijah says. Elijah confronts the people, 1 Kings 18, verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? He's saying, why are you sinking between these two thoughts? Uh, The word waver again, it means to go lame and to fall down. So here's what Elijah's saying. If you're for the God of Israel, or you're against the God of Israel, those are two valid places to stand. But if you presume the delusion of neutrality, if you say, oh, I think all religions are basically good, and then there's no one true religion, then you're being either dishonest or deluded. Elijah says you can be for the Lord, you can be against the Lord. But you can't refuse to choose. You can't maintain this myth that they're all basically the same, all valid. Uh, It's better to be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Elijah says, it'd be better for you to actually be against God than to have this illusion of neutrality. But for the average American today, that's exactly the position they have. And yet Elijah says, that's the worst possible place to be standing at all, of all. Indeed, it's not a place that you can can stand. Why not? Here are some reasons. Elijah is basically saying that this middle road, this lukewarm, non-committal, on-the-fence position, it's like a swamp. Put this on the overhead. It's like a swamp intellectually, psychologically, and, and, and culturally. And if you have this position, you are going to be equally stuck in this swamp. And you will sink. First of all, this position wavering, limping around between uh, two opinions, first of all, it's a swamp intellectually. When you say every, every religion has part of the truth, no religion sees the whole picture, uh, and therefore no religion should, should ever say my view of the truth is superior to somebody else's, when you say that, when you say no one has a superior view to anybody else, you're implicitly assuming that you have a superior view to everybody else. Or else how would you know that no one religion is correct? Unless you're claiming to have superior knowledge. To say no one sees the whole picture assumes that you see the whole picture. Or else how would you know this? You cannot know that all religions only see part of the truth unless you are claiming and you're assuming that you see the whole truth. It's like the old story of the five blind men with the elephant, right? Everyone, all these five blind men are all feeling different parts of the elephant. Each one feels a different part, you know, the trunk, uh, the tail, the legs, uh, the body, the tusks. Uh, and so each one describes the elephant uh, as looking like only the part that he feels. So you all think the elephant looks a different, a different way. And the skeptics say, aha, that's just like religion. Everyone only sees part of, of, of the picture. 
But the problem with this analogy is that it assumes that you're the outside observer and that you see the whole elephant. It assumes that you have the complete and superior view of the truth and reality and God. So when you say every religion is basically valid, you're by definition assuming the very kind of ultimate knowledge that you insist no one can have. It's a self-defeating argument. And when you say to someone, you should never say that your view of spiritual reality is superior to someone else's view, in essence what you're saying is that your view of spiritual reality is superior. You're doing the very thing that you condemn. So you pretend uh, uh, to, to not be taking a stand, but it's, it's contradictory at its heart. Everyone has a position. Yeshua followers, we simply admit it. While secular people pretend or, or delude themselves into thinking that they are neutral. So to waver between two opinions, between God and Baal, is in its definition an intellectual contradiction. Number two, it's a psychological contradiction. Because a believer at least admits, yes, I'm dogmatic about certain truths. But a person who says all religions are basically alike, well, they're being equally dogmatic without realizing it or without being willing to admit it. A person with this view says, all views are relative. But what they really mean is, all views are relative except mine. So they're in denial. Because they believe that their relativistic view of truth is superior to all other views. But they won't admit their own dogmatism or their own intolerance against absolute views of the truth. So their position is a psychological contradiction. And then third, it's a cultural contradiction. The reason why this relativistic view is so prominent today is because they worship the God of tolerance. Secularists say the only way we can be, as a society, can be tolerant toward other religions is to say that they're all basically the same. They're all true in their own way. But ironically, they're not being tolerant at all. Their, this view is violent towards religion. This view that says all religions end up in the same place and therefore there's no need to choose between uh, true and false, this view is anti-religious because it refuses to listen to what the religions are actually saying about themselves. So secularism is really the most intolerant of all views because it refuses to let the different religions, Yeshua faith, Islam, Hinduism, Rabbinic Judaism, Buddhism, it refuses to let them define themselves and their inherent and radical differences with one another. It tries to say all religions are basically the same when it's simply not true and no adherent, adherent to one of these religions would ever say that they're basically the same as any other religion. So the secularist view in the name of tolerance intolerantly refuses to let each religion define itself. So what's Elijah saying? He's saying there's only two positions. There is no neutrality. Everybody has a view of ultimate truth. And so you need to decide which claims are true and which claims are false. But don't you dare say they're all the same. Or that they're all okay. Or they're all those different flavors of ice cream. And you won't be able to move on if you're stuck between these two places. You must decide whom you will serve. God or Baal. God or your own idols. So, with on the overhead, number one, there's no neutrality in spiritual values. And number two, how do you know then if you're worshiping a false god? 
First Kings 18 talks about Baal worship. And when the prophets of Baal began their religious activities, what did they do? Look at verse 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shout. But there's no response. No one answers. Then they dance around the altar they've made. Then Elijah mocks them and taunts them. Look at verse 28. So they shout louder and, and slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. We talked about there being no intellectual neutrality with God. Now here we're seeing there's also no spiritual neutrality. If Yeshua is not your master, then something else is. The word Baal, by the way, is actually a generic word uh, meaning Lord or Master. It's really a generic name for any god. It's a word that means a spiritual Lord. Uh, and, and this god described here in 1 Kings 18 was the rain Baal. But there were other Baals. There was a beauty Baal, uh, and a farming Baal, and a Baal of the sea, and a military Baal, and a party Baal, uh, and a wisdom Baal. Every force of nature, and every human need or desire was turned into a god. And we say, yeah, but that's all those primitive people way back then, right? Primitive. Primitive? The pagans actually knew something that we don't. They admit things that we don't. They knew that everybody worships something. That everyone is under the spiritual power of something. That everything is a bail. So, for example, on TV uh, and magazines and billboards and Facebook and the Instagram and the Internet, we're constantly barraged by pictures of young, beautiful, thin women, right? And you're hit with it over and over again, daily, every day. Now, the pagans understood. What are these pictures? They're not there to give you information. There's a spiritual authority about them. There's a spiritual power about them. And they can pass into your soul and begin to exercise that power. When you take any created thing and make that thing the thing that really makes you happy, then it really makes you say... Uh, this is, this will, 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 will make me acceptable. Uh, that thing becomes a Baal. And you get into Baal worship. Now, we're, we're modern and we're secular, so we don't believe any of this, do we? We're in denial. But the pagans understood this. That's why they had their temples and their altars for all these different gods. So take all these fashion model images, for example, that we're inundated with every day. Now, if you're a young girl... And they pass, these images pass into your soul. And they become a spiritual power. What happens to you? Well, they could cause you to get into eating disorders. Because the image is saying you've got to look like this. This is the picture of beauty. Uh, this is attractiveness. This is power. This is worth. Then you're somebody. Uh, and, and women, if these images pass into your soul... You also are going to give men too much, way too much power in your life. Because you're going to need a man to tell you that, that you're desirable. And if these images pass into the soul of a young man, what happens? You say, that's the kind of woman I want. And by the way, these are photoshopped, airbrushed supermodels. And you won't find anybody like that. <laughs> and so you're going to find real women unacceptable and falling short and unattractive and that's one way that men get hooked on pornography because they can't relate to real women 
because they have this idealized image and myth stuck in their minds. These images pass into your soul and begin to subtly exercise the kind of, a kind of spiritual authority over you. They're modern-day Baals, modern-day Aphrodites, you know, the goddess of beauty, Aphrodite, modern-day idols. And we're all affected by this on some level. Having these idealized images everywhere thrown at us all the time. So, for example, I, I walk past a mirror and I look into it and I say, Wow, who's that old, bald, flabby, funny-looking guy in the mirror? <laughs> Why does this bother us so much? You know, because in other cultures, old age and gray hair are honored and revered and equated with wisdom and experience and sagacity. But not in our culture. Because we worship youth and beauty and flawless skin and small waists and physical perfection, right? The Greeks and the Romans and the pagans knew something about this that we won't admit. This is Aphrodite. They had temples for her. They worshipped and bowed down to her and her statue. Uh, They knew this was a spiritual force that was exercising spiritual power over their life. And if you think you're not religious, this is telling you that everything can be a bail. Everything is a bail. Even good things like career and family and relationships can become a bail. There is no spiritual neutrality in the universe. That's a myth. But it's not just non-religious people who are shocked when they're told that they're into Baal worship. Religious people are also shocked. People who go to church and synagogue are shocked when they realize that they're into Baal worship also. On the overhead, we're going to put this, because the mark of Baal worship is what I'm going to call role reversal. The mark of Baal worship is you get into a works righteousness religion, but you and God change places. Look at the prophets of God. They get into all this crazy frenzy, right? And then we laugh at them, right? Look again. They're going before their God to perform all these elaborate rituals, win their God's approval, impress Him. You've got to do everything just right to answer your prayers, right? And Baal worship. But what do we do? Let's put on the overhead. For example, what do we say? I did everything right. I believed. I prayed in faith. I confessed all known sin. I claimed all the promises. I rebuked the devil. I pled the blood. I thank God ahead of time for answering my prayer. I fasted. I followed all the rules and God still didn't come through. We all risk treating God as if he is like Baal. And thinking some formula, even a biblically based formula, will guarantee the response we want. And we're constantly trying to put God in our little box. On the overhead again. But this is Baal worship. In Baal worship, you switch roles with God... Why? Because you know best what you need. And you're the one who's good because you've you've done everything right and you've followed all these formulas. And maybe perhaps your God is asleep or traveling or busy or indisposed. So you've got to wheedle him and control him and put pressure on him. He's the one who needs more information in the overhead. Uh, And you do all the proper religious things Works righteousness and performance to get what you think you absolutely deserve. And that is Baal worship. Without realizing it, you're treating God like Baal. 
Again, on the overhead. The mark of Baal worship is that you're under the spiritual authority of something, and yet you try to be in the driver's seat. You try to control these forces, but in the end, they control you. Again, the overhead. Because the real way you know something is an idol in your life is when you find you can't get what you want, you begin to slash yourself. Like the prophets of Baal. If you, are in, if you are in absolute despair, when you don't get something you really want, I didn't get into the college I wanted to get into. I didn't get the boyfriend or girlfriend I wanted. I didn't make the sports team. If you can't get over these setbacks and these disappointments in life, that's a sign that it's a bail. You are worshiping it. It is controlling you. And so you start to slash yourself when it won't answer. It's a bail. It's a spiritual authority and a stronghold in your life. It's not only a good thing. It's become a god. And it's removing Yeshua from the center of your life. Because there's no such thing in the universe as spiritual neutrality. We all have bales in our life. That we identify, but we've got to identify them and cast them out. We try to control it. But it ends up controlling us. So, in the overhead, the second point is, you're never going to find the true God until you first recognize your false gods. And then on the overhead, number three, how then do you find the true God? And the answer is, only by fire. Only by fire, in two different ways. First, it's not enough just to intellectually find God. It never works that way. God often needs to send a lightning bolt down to get your attention. What is this contest? What is this showdown on Mount Carmel? It's a lightning contest. God has caused a drought uh, to show that he was the true Lord of the heavens, not Baal. He's the Lord of the storm. He's the one who sends thunder in from the clouds. And after three and a half years, God's ready now to send the rain finally again on Israel right? and to water the ground. But here's what he also knows. God knows if he just sends them water, they will drown spiritually. Because there's nothing more dangerous than a happy life filled with nothing but plenty and prosperity and ease. Nothing more dangerous. Because if God just, just sends rain to the people, the people are going to either, they're going to say either one, well, Baal, the storm god must have done that. Or two, I'm just fine the way I am, and everything always works out well in the end. See, the rain came. I don't need to repent. I don't need to change. And put this on the overhead. When you're successful, it just confirms your idols. When you're successful, you take credit for it. Oh, look what I've achieved. Not bad, huh? You don't find God when there's nothing but showers of blessing coming down. So God often needs to send a lightning bolt into your life to get your attention... Uh, so close that it almost hits you. So number one, you never find the real God unless fire comes down in your life. A wake-up call. Something to get your attention. To, to open, your, open up your spiritually blind eyes. And then number two, on the overhead, if you want to find God, you've got to see where the fire came down. Why didn't it come down on them? Why didn't the fire come down on the people? It instead came down on the sacrifice. Why would this animal sacrifice suffice? 
Well, it doesn't. But it points to the ultimate sacrifice. You know, in Luke 9, Yeshua and his disciples, they're talking about, I think, this very event. Uh, They're headed towards Samaria, the former capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But the townspeople there in Samaria won't let them in. They reject Yeshua. His disciples are furious at these Samaritans. Look at Luke 9, verse 54. And his disciples say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them just like Elijah did? So they're perhaps thinking about this passage, you know, fire from heaven. Fire of God's judgment and justice and wrath. Fire on sin. Luke 9, 55. But Yeshua turned and rebuked them. Yeshua rebukes his disciples. You see, the disciples don't really understand Elijah's story. And probably in connection with this, in Luke 12, 49, put the overhead, Yeshua says, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it already were kindled, for I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint I'm under until it's completed. Yeshua says, I've come to be baptized with fire. I've come to receive the fire. Yeshua was saying to his disciples, you don't understand the Elijah story on Mount Carmel very well, do you? I'm not Elijah calling down fire in judgment. I'm the sacrifice that received the fire of judgment. That's where I am in this story. Yeshua said the only reason why these people weren't consumed by the fire of judgment is because of the sacrifice that was consumed instead. But actually, it's ultimately just a symbol. Yeshua went up another mountain, uh, Mount Calvary, and he took into his heart the fire of God's justice and judgment so that you could have in your life the fire of God's power and love. Every other God says, cut and slash yourself for me. Shed your blood for me. Spend your whole life pursuing into the ground or your gods of success and performance and achievement and affirmation and acclaim for me. But there's only one God, only one Lord, Yeshua, who was cut and slashed for you, who shed his blood for you. His blood ran into the ground. Every other God will make your blood run. There's only one God and one Lord where his blood ran for you. For you. Yeshua. There is no other religion that even dares to make this claim. So here's the only way you're going to overcome the power of the idols and the bales in your life. You've got to see that Yeshua gives you freely whatever the other God says. It only gives you through your own performance and your own blood. On the overhead. Yeshua gives you through his blood whatever the other God demands through yours. See, the fire of God coming down on Yeshua, you need to see this, this ultimate sacrifice and what Messiah has done for you. You get to see your own ultimate beauties in Yeshua. So the goddesses of beauty don't bother you anymore. Uh, Their hold on you, her hold on you is broken. You get to see your ultimate success and acceptance is in Yeshua. So the God of success doesn't have any power and control over you anymore. And you've got to see it by fire. You only know God through fire. Yeshua says, I took the fire of God's justice so that you could have the fire 
of God's love. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I ask the music team to please come up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for the fire of your love. Yeshua, you took the fire of God's justice so that we could have the fire of God's love. Thank you for your ultimate sacrifice, which the sacrifice on Mount Carmel just pointed to. Thank you for, for, for Yochanan Hamabil, John the Baptist, who came in the power and spirit of Elijah as the forerunner of the Messiah. Thank you for this incredible picture you have given us today of victory over the forces of evil on Mount Carmel, over Jezebel's false gods. Help us, Lord, today to put on the full armor of God and to see that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Help us, Lord Yeshua, to stand against the evil forces uh, of Jezebel that are trying to take over America today. Forces of radical feminism and sexual immorality and pornography and abortion and infanticide and homosexuality and transgenderism uh, and witchcraft. Forces trying to bring us under under the bondage of demonic paganism. Show us how, as men and women of God, we are to resist this evil. This evil tide and bring our nation back to you. And finally, Lord, help us to resist and to cast out all the individual little bales in our own life. Our own idols and strongholds and addictions and selfish ambitions and ego and resentments and bitterness. And all the things we've made into a God and given a foothold uh, in our life. We repent, Lord, of these idolatries, and we humble ourselves, and we submit wholly to you, Yeshua, and to you alone. For you, Yeshua, our Lord, you, our Lord, and we pray this all in your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua, Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.